Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. afternoon cliff a good afternoon to you bobo how are you doing today pretty good pretty good how about yourself i'm doing all right man i'm doing all right it's been a pretty good week uh uh, lots of stuff going on at the museum um lots of interesting visitors and um some reports have been coming in um a a track find this week by one of the nabc team uh it's been a very very active week it's been exceptional really oh cool yeah nothing great like that going on down here but well, you're in Long Beach. Not a lot of track finds down in Long Beach, right? It's been in the mid-80s all week. Oh, that's good and bad. It was too hot for me, but it was still pretty nice. Well, yeah, it was good beach weather. Are you making it out to the ocean, checking it out? I mean, I'm like two blocks from the water, but I don't go down to the beach. I don't go in the sun if I don't have to. <laughs> it's your vampiric tendencies coming out. No, it's just like I was such a, in the sun my whole life that I'm trying to set up it now just because skin cancer runs in the family. Oh, okay. It has nothing to do with you being a vampire then. No. I don't know. You should embrace it, Bobes. Uh, vampires <laughs> are supposedly very sexy. I still get out. I mean, I still go out in the sun. I just don't sit in it. Oh, okay. So it's not like you turn into dust or something like that. No, good. no, no. Good. But hey, we got something good this week coming up here. Oh my gosh. I could not be more excited. It is so rare that we have Bigfoot royalty on the show, but this hey, is one of those Clint, times. I was going to say, you should say who. Oh, well, I, I, oh, like I don't know. Yeah. Who, Bobes? Well, this week we're being joined by one of the friends we made doing the shoots of Finding Bigfoot. We've met a lot of great people, and one of them was the grandson of one of the legends of all time, one of the greatest squatchers ever, Jonathan Summerlin, the grandson of Wes Summerlin. Absolutely. A good, good friend of ours and a member of a very elite team of Bigfoot royalty. Jonathan, welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, really, really appreciate you setting some time aside. I know you're a very, very busy guy, um, and I know you're going to have a lot to share with us and to kind of clarify some of the things um, in your grandfather's career and, um, and how you're also carrying on that legacy. So um, where do we even start? I mean, with a guy with the 80-year legacy of Bigfoot, I guess we start at the beginning, right? Even before his grandpa, it starts. Tell us about it, Jonathan. How, how, does, how does your grandfather's foray into Sasquatch begin? Well, Grandpa originally started his Bigfoot uh, research uh, from the reservation, uh, Colville Reservation, where he grew up. He found his first track when he was just five, six years old, and he confronted the elders about it, asking what this was. And that's when pre-Sasquatch, pre-Bigfoot, they just referred to it as the wild man. And And what year would that have been, actually? Approximately what year, if you don't know? Oh, wow. Around the 30s? 1930s. Wow. Up in Colville. And is, was your grandfather uh, native? He, he was raised native. Um, he was part Indian, uh, definitely not full, but he was able to learn and grow and learn the native ways. Was he from that tribe? Uh, Colville Indian Reservation is where most of his exploration or younger years started out. But was he, was he Colville or was he a different kind of tribe? If you asked him, he'd tell you he was Nez Perce and Cherokee. Okay. Yeah, we'll trust him on that. <laughs> so he found his first track when he was like five years old um, and then went to the elders and, and they explained to him what? Well, they just told me it was the wild man and to leave it alone. They didn't give him a lot of information on it. Um, so he didn't do what they were told, obviously. Oh, no. Grandpa was definitely one of those people where if you, and I'm the same way, as if you tell him not to do it or it can't be done he's gonna prove you wrong one way or another 
I bet you can't <laughs> give me all your money, Jonathan. I dare you. <laughs> what money? <laughs> I'm a teacher. We don't make money. <laughs> so yeah. So as as uh, um, Wes's uh, life continued, did he just get further and further into it, or was there a turning point later that kind of set the blueprint for the rest of his life? Well, to be honest with you, a lot of people they assume Grandpa was a researcher. If you asked him, he wasn't. Uh, he was just a man that loved going to the mountains. Uh, the mountains was everything about his life. He worked as a tracker. He worked for the Forestry Service. He serviced trails. I mean, the mountains is just how he made his livelihood. And when he was up there, he a lot of times would go up with his family and friends. And if something happened, awesome. If he found tracks or hair or had a sighting, that was great. But if nothing happened, well, he just spent a month in the mountains with friends and family, so it doesn't matter. But uh, he did, when we'd go up there, he'd always have his rituals for letting the big guy know we were there or leaving out gifts. And then we'd just go on about our camping trip. And if he heard something or smelt something, he'd let us know. And we'd go out and look and see if we could find tracks. And he'd fill us in. It sounds like uh, the advice I give, um, and I'm sure that you know all of us are probably asked for advice on uh, new Bigfooters and whatnot and what they should be doing. And my advice kind of at this point has come down to what your grandfather was doing, which is go to the woods for another reason other than Bigfoot. Exactly. Go out there, go out there to go camping or fishing or mushroom picking or hiking or whatever you're doing out there. And sometimes Bigfoot's around, but most of the time they're not. That's what I tell people, too. I get asked that all the time. How can I get into Bigfoot research? Get out from behind the computer and go to the mountains. Don't go looking for Bigfoot. If you're going to look for Bigfoot, you're going to miss Bigfoot. But if you go up there and you go hiking, you go fishing, you go hunting, or just enjoy nature, nature go camping with your family, the longer you're up there and the more interesting you are, the more possibility it's going to come check you out. Uh, there was instances as a kid where me and my sister Melinda went out to go shoot the 22 down in the lower meadow at Timothy. And we were just shooting. That's it. And then we headed back to camp and grandpa came back to camp uh, about an hour later and said, who just got back? We told him it was, well, me and Melinda. And he says, well, someone followed you back. And that's when we went down he brought us back down the trail, and you could see where a Bigfoot, a juvenile, stepped over our tracks and followed us back to camp. Yeah. You know, I have a question for you before we move on past. You said your grandpa would leave gifts. What would he leave out? How would he decide like, how much to leave and where to leave it? When we went to Timothy, there was a stump just off the main trail. Uh, if you've been to Timothy Meadows, you know where the main trail starts. There's that camp there to the left. And then just kind of, I guess, north of it a little bit was a stump. And he would leave candy bars sometimes. Uh, there was a few occurrences where his tobacco, him and grandma, when they smoked, was stolen. Like menthol tobacco. Oh. Uh, they'd find the papers and the filters, but they would never find the tobacco. Would they just put the cigarettes out or like a pile of loose tobacco? Well, those were stolen, he said. Yeah, he just, well, they did steal it, but he did sometimes when we'd go up there, he'd just leave a bag out. and but Not a menthol, though, I'm sure. Would he? Well, he wasn't leaving a cigarette and a lighter out there for him, but he was, <laughs> he'd bring tobacco up there, leave it in a bag or put it out on something and leave it on a stump and uh, just kind of a, hi, we're here. And would he, would he like yell out to the forest, like say, hey, here's a gift or anything, or did he just silently leave it? Uh, dad said that in the pre me that he would occasionally would, uh, yell something or, um, he what didn't do any like tree knocking or nothing like that, but he did mention it a few times, but now he just leave it there and go back to camp and start breaking, you know, bringing out the TP and all the fishing equipment and whatever else, the saddles. Cause we always were up there with horses. Do you think the horses had anything to do, um, with the Bigfoots being interested? I don't think so. I think it was just the family time, to be honest with you. Because when we went camping, it wasn't just grandpa and grandma and maybe two or three grandkids. It was 
I can't think of a camp out that we ever did that was less than 20 or 30 people. I mean, we had the whole family out there, uh, my dad, my uncles, my aunts, their kids and their kids' kids. We'd go up to the whatever campsite, either uh, Squaw Camp, Bone Springs, or Timothy Meadows. 90% of the time, a lot of times, it was Timothy Meadows. We'd get into camp. It would be the kids that collect the campfire, uh, the wood. Uh, while the younger adults set up the tents, the older adults got the horses and stuff ready. So we all had our routine. And then we just stayed. We just lived, enjoyed life. And occasionally stuff would happen. Trying to think of a particular story that my dad loves telling is when he was a kid, they were at Timothy or in that area, and they were playing ball. And a ball got thrown way back into the trees. And then got thrown back to them and they thought somebody was up there. So they didn't pay much attention to it. And then the ball ended up there again and got thrown back to the kids. And then dad and my uncle Tom, uncle John, they started realizing that everybody was in camp. So who was throwing this out there? So they'd go back and grandpa would say, well, it was probably just Bigfoot or something. Then as the years progressed, the same thing happened to some of us kids. And we actually went back there, followed grandpa back into the, uh, behind the camp. And we actually found tracks where one was up there. So it's, if you make life interesting and you just enjoy life and you're not up there, not to diss anybody that does this, but with all your recording equipment, tree knocking, howling every night, and you're just up there living, then I think you got a good chance of having something happen. Yeah, especially if you got time and if you're going to the same places. If you want to have, if you're only there for a short time and trying to create like a response, you can, but that's not the way to start a good relationship if you're going to be going to the same place. Exactly. Um, And another thing is, I see a lot of people doing uh, around here, they go up and do night hunts. And I still don't understand that. But for every encounter that I've ever had and a lot of my grandpa's encounters, has all happened during the day while you were out living. So if you're, I mean, who wants to watch somebody sleep? <laughs> weirdos and creeps. Yeah. I was going to say, I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, weirdos and creeps. <laughs> she was gorgeous. I bet. I bet. Especially in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> or only in the dark. That's so um, what, what is your earliest memory uh, of um, Sasquatches out in the woods? Because you must have been just barely more than an infant. Because you grew up in, a, in an environment just, just soaked in Bigfoot. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, it's funny you mentioned the infant. The first time I was brought to the mountains was the Wanaha Wilderness area. And I was carried in in one of Grandpa's pack saddles. So I was just a few months old. I could only stay a day or two before I got sick and my parents had to take me out. Uh, Let's see. Probably, I wasn't even a teenager yet. Uh, We woke up. We heard something walking around camp. And this is one of those thievery stories. Grandpa and them just told everybody to stay in the tent when we heard the rustling. And that following morning, we woke up and we found tracks in camp. And mind you, at that time, I was not a believer. Um, Grandpa had all these fabulous stories. And up until then, I thought, until I had my first sighting, I just thought they were ghost stories. I didn't believe in Bigfoot. Uh, But that was one of the nights I remember that Grandma was really upset because all of her menthol cigarettes were gone. And the next day, when we woke up that morning, uh, Grandpa tracked it, and we found just the paper and the filters of their Newport cigarettes, but all the tobacco was gone. Probably had an effect like uh, Osman when he gave him the tobacco that made him sick, just imagine what menthol did to him. Who knows? Maybe they liked the smell of it, too. Uh, But that was something after that, Grandpa would leave. You know, you mentioned something. Um, you talked about Grandpa would go track it. Your grandfather, your grandfather was an, a legitimate expert tracker. Oh yeah, yeah. Tell us about that because I, I, nowadays, you know, your, your grandfather's been dead for quite a while. Um, you know, Freeman's been dead for quite a while, and all, all the Blue Mountain folk. Lowry's gone. Um, the, these people are gone now, um, and 
of course, now the people behind the computers are saying that, oh, there's, there's hoaxing involved and all these other things. I don't think that the people nowadays realize the expertise that these people had out in the woods. Can you talk a little bit about how your grandfather became a tracker and his skill level and, and how that showed? Well, Grandpa was definitely a foremost expert in tracking. Uh, again, he grew up on the reservation, so he learned a lot of the tracking from the old natives, the old way of reading trails. So I'm around the blues whenever people got lost in the mountains. Grandpa was always the first one they'd call to track them to find either escaped criminals or people that got lost on the trail. He when you, when always, you said they would call, who would call him? The Forestry Service or the police, the Sheriff's Department. Yeah, they used his tracking skills all over the Blue Mountains for all kinds of search and rescue. Uh, we do have the state prison here, so occasionally back in the day, they would actually, if someone escaped, if they headed towards the mountains, they'd call Grandpa and say, you know, go track them. But he'd use uh, all types of different skills. The my first lessons I got after I had my first encounter and became a believer officially he had me out there trying to learn how to read trails and he'd get down on the ground, for instance, and he'd look at the blades of grass that are in the track and he'd explain on how it's rising slowly. Cause if you go out to your yard, if you got grass in your yard and you step down, you're going to flatten it out. But if you go back out there a couple hours later, everything's going to be standing up again. So that's one of the lessons he gave me is you can really learn a lot by that is by stepping on something and watch it and see how long it takes. And that'll give you a good idea how old that track is. Uh, another thing he would explain is when you're tracking something, sometimes, yes, the trail would completely disappear and you'd be trying to figure out what's going on here. But you need to start making circles at that point because that trail will eventually pick back up as long as it's a legit trackway, uh, deer, elk, bear, whatever. So he had his own little methods, but he learned it the old way. And I will never, ever be even a tenth of the tracker he was. But what I did learn from him was amazing. You got to practice tracking. I mean, like, it's kind of like riding a bike, but not really. I mean, if you're not doing it a lot and like you take a couple of years off or something, you get back out there, it takes a while to get back in the groove. I mean, it's kind of an art form as well as, you know, just analy analytics. It's, you got to have like the, the gut feeling a lot of times, you know, that you're on the right course and you'll pick it up again. But yeah, people don't realize tracking, it's a skill you got to work on a lot. Oh yeah, for sure. And I've been, like I've mentioned, I've been out of the mountains for a little while with family issues. But uh, I am concerned that when I do go back up there, I'm going to have to, you got to use all your senses. You want to, you can feel the track sometimes like a bed that we found on my first sighting. You know, you could, how warm it was. So you got to learn to touch and you'd learn to smell and you need to listen to everything that's going around you. The birds will tell you a lot. Tracking isn't just looking at a track and following it. You got to learn how to read how old it is. You can watch the grass. You got to learn the environment, the ground, and you got to use your sight, smell, everything. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. And you know, it's tracking Sasquatches is particularly complex, honestly, because even more than, than humans, actually, because their feet are so big and padded and flexible 
And even in humans, most of our weight comes down on our heel and also the ball or uh, the, the heads of the metatarsals, the ball and the toe area, because that's where the pressure is. But in Sasquatches, the pressure is really more distributed throughout the entire bottom of the foot. And when you add, there's like a, probably an inch or maybe even an inch and a half fat pad on the bottom of the foot. There, that doesn't leave a lot of trace a lot of times. And it takes someone with that special eye to see those subtle signs in the ground. Um, and, and I'm really thankful that you mentioned that because so many people nowadays, they look at the Blue Mountain evidence and assume that there's hoaxing going on because there's so much evidence. When actually, what we have here is a small number of people who have developed that eye over their lifetime in an area where Sasquatch is frequent. Um, you know, and, and really, when you look at the Blue Mountain evidence, what is there, 60 casts maybe? And that, that, those casts span from about 1982 to about 2002. It's not really that many, especially when several of those casts come from the same track line. Um, so I just wanted to get that out there, that we're not dealing with a situation where these people are, quote unquote, the luckiest Bigfooters ever to live, as some people have said. We're dealing with um, highly specialized, uh, well, I mean, people are with these highly specialized skills in an area that is that has a local population of Sasquatches that keep walking around. Yeah. No, I understand what you're saying. Um, I'm trying to think of how many tracks that I know of. I know I have about 50 or so that were grandpas. Um, I've collected a few over the years. Uh, one thing that I try to do that grandpa told me is if I do find a track line, or even a few tracks, I always try to find a left and a right. So at least I in a trail that I can follow, at, at least to a point. Um, if I just find a track here and a track over there, I probably ain't going to bother casting it. I'm just going to, okay, that's cool. Maybe take a picture. But there hasn't been a whole lot. But yeah, there's, Grandpa didn't always cast either. I mean, again, sometimes when we went to the mountains, it was just to go to the mountains. So I, he didn't plan on bringing plaster with him everywhere he went. So sometimes we just find tracks and that was it. We found tracks. Your grandfather is also a witness on several occasions, right? Oh, yeah. Do you know, do you know the first time he saw a Sasquatch? Ooh. You may not. I mean, is your, I don't know a lot about my grandfather's experiences at the end of the day, so... You may His not first know. one, I don't know. I'd have to ask my dad on that one. Um, I'm sure he knows. I can think of several times that he's mentioned seeing it, but I can't think of what would be his very first one. I know the story of his first track that he found. When he was five or six? Yeah. Uh, that's kind of a family, you know, legacy story. What I can remember of the story. Uh, it's kind of like Bobo said with tracking. So the family stories, sometimes you got to look them up to refresh your memory. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Well, well tell us about a time that your uh, grandfather actually laid his eyes on a Sasquatch. You know, I was actually never with him when he had an actual sight. We found a lot of tracks, but I mean, Bigfoot of the Blues is a good book. It mentions some of his sightings. He's mentioned a couple of times. He was up there, him, Grandpa. Um, I can't remember the names of the other couple they were with. They were riding in, again, Wanaha area, and they came across the bend, and they saw two of them and a juvenile playing in the water uh, down in the Wanaha River. Hmm. And they continued on to camp, and Grandpa went back uh, as soon as they got everything unloaded and then went back to see what they could find and just found some tracks. But I, I remember that story pretty prominent. But yeah, he's had uh, so many sightings. I just can't think well, of one. Okay. That I don't want to don't want to put you on the spot or anything like that. So let's shift gears and talk about your father a little bit. I, I know Ray; he's a really good guy. I really like him a lot. Um, you guys have both been to the museum and uh, met a lot of our customers, and that was a great event that we had with you. Can you tell us a little about some of your uh, father's experiences, and then we'll get into some of yours. Um, as well, because this is a family legacy thing. There's, there seems to be Bigfoot in your blood. I'd like to go down the generations here and talk a little bit about that. To be honest with you, uh, Dad, he didn't do any actual going up doing research. We started out after Grandpa died. Uh, me and him started going and collecting reports. Um, he actually taught me a little bit more of what Grandpa would look for in taking research or taking reports. Uh, he's had a couple of encounters growing up with grandpa 
he had his first uh, encounter with tracks and whatnot in the it's in the in the watershed, but there's a forest area that I can't think of the name. Grandpa had and dad, they all had their own name for it, but it's kind of like a really dark part of the forest that even grandpa didn't like going into. But uh he found they found some tracks there. That was most of dad's thing. If he found tracks, it was most likely because he was with grandpa. He didn't pursue it as much as say I would have pursued it or afterwards. Unfortunately, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well, now his sister saw one eventually. Uh, yeah, my aunt Carol. Yeah, she told me about it when we were filming out uh, in Walla Walla for Finding Bigfoot. Yeah, she finally saw one after all those years, and she was so relieved. I remember she shared that with me, like a road crossing. I think, if I remember right. Yeah, I think that was on. Uh, oh, what was the name of that road? Her and uh, Bob Patton, uh, my uncle Bob. Uh, they've had a couple encounters of howls and yells on that road and then eventually they actually had one cross the road sounds like a bad (laughs) joke almost (laughs) well i remember she was so relieved because as you mentioned she had heard them i think she had seen tracks in the ground and kind of been surrounded by this subject all of her life and then she she had been deprived of that sighting until that road crossing yeah that's how it kind of works with a lot of us in the family is you know some of us jumped right in and was a flat-out believer from the get-go uh, me i've always been a little bit more skeptical and until i had my first encounter i actually gave an interview uh someone asked me about uh what i thought of grandpa and all this bigfoot stuff and i made the not so smart comment that I think my grandpa fell off the horse one too many times. There's not a giant monkey running around the mountains. Oh, man. <laughs> I was proved wrong. <laughs> That's what yeah. you get then. Good. You deserve that one. Yeah. Well, tell us about your first, uh, your first sighting when um, suddenly your life shifted and grandpa had not fallen off that horse too many times. Yeah. Um, it was actually just a few months after I made that comment. It was actually to Vance Orchard. He was writing an article. Uh, we were, used to meet at the Blue Mountain Mall uh, here in Walla Walla every Sunday, and sometimes grandpa would bring tracks. Kind of the Bigfoot Club. I used to call them the Blue Mountain Researchers. Uh, back in the day, and because Paul Freeman would be there, if Renee was in town, Renee DeHinden would be there, uh, Grover Krantz, a lot of these people I grew up around or talking was to. Was that the burger joint? No, it was a mall. It was yeah. a, We'd meet in front of the pizza place. I, I think I went to the place with you where they used to meet, didn't we? Oh, that was Mr. Ed's. That was a restaurant yeah, on Ed. the other side of town, which unfortunately just closed down not too long ago. Uh, but. Uh, Anyhow, after I gave that report, that summer we went to the mountains. We went to Timothy, and there's quite a few of us, but me, my stepbrother Ryan, and my sister-in-law's little brother Andy, 14 years old, not allowed to smoke at home, obviously. We snuck away from camp to go smoke a cigarette, and we went down to the lower meadow, and as we were down there, we noticed this tree start shaking. and. After it kept going, I unfortunately got voted to go check out this tree, most likely to get eaten, I guess. And there was nothing there. And as I was walking back up the hill, my brother come running around and scared the crap out of us. And yes, there's a point for this part of the story. He screamed and we yelled and he thought it was the funniest thing and was heading back to camp and said that grandpa was getting ready to go for a ride. So as soon as he was gone, uh, we saw him go up the trail. I turned to get out of the wind to light up my cigarette again. And that's when it walked out of the bushes, maybe 25 feet in front of me, 20 feet. Oh, gosh, and, really close. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is not a very big field. I'll, I can take a satellite picture and send it to you and kind of line it up for you. But it walked out, and then it just stopped. And it trying to describe this is just it was looking at us with as much shock as i was looking at it um and i'm slapping behind me and i hit ryan and then ryan's looking then he slaps behind him and hits andy and we're all staring at this thing and it was a lot of people say how scared they are but it was you know like that 10 percent scared at first but then you realize it's as shocked as you are 
And it felt like we stared at each other for an hour, but it was probably only just a couple of minutes, if that. And then it just turned and walked away. And was it a big one or a little one? It was probably about six, six and a half feet, maybe. It wasn't a big, big one. Um, when we went back down there, we, well, I'll get to that part, but it wasn't, I don't think it was a full grown adult. But uh, I went ahead and or we, the three of us ran back to camp and we get back to camp. We're out of breath and there's grandpa getting ready to go out for a ride. And we tell him we just saw a Bigfoot. And I think, you know, grandpa didn't quite believe us at first, but we loaded up on the horses. We went down to where we were at. You know, of course, grandpa asked what we were doing. We told him we were just hiking, not smoking, grandpa, honest. And we went down, I showed him where it was, and Grandpa started looking around, and he went back behind this bush and found this, I hate to call it a nest, because it wasn't a nest, but you could see a lot of uh, branches and brush and uh, that was pushed together, and something was laying there. And he started looking around a little bit more, and lo and behold, there's some tracks. And he was able to follow those tracks for several yards. He disappeared up over the hill a little bit, but that was our first encounter. And he found a ton of tracks. We got some of those cast, uh, found what looked like a bed, which Grandpa also found some DNA samples from hair samples. And as we we're investigating this and Grandpa's getting ready to mix in his plaster to make a cast, he looked over at me and goes, so, uh, Crash, what was it you were saying in that interview a couple months ago? Yeah, good. It's like, uh, yeah. And he he brought that up a few times, just kind of rubbing it in. It's like, yeah, he didn't fall off his horse one too many times. There was definitely a giant monkey running around those mountains. <laughs> and just to clarify, Crash is your nickname. Oh, yeah, that's a nickname my grandpa gave me when I was a kid. Uh, he always said I tried to learn how to run before I learned how to crawl. But unfortunately, I would run into walls. <laughs> okay. So, nice. but yeah, that was when I got the bug and I asked grandpa to start teaching me. So he's, that was my first tracking lesson. Uh, we got down, that's when he explained to me about the rising grass. And he said, that's something you just kind of got to learn as time goes. You're not going to learn it all at once. And he uh, showed me how to, you know, he had me put my hand on the bed or where it might've been laying down and feel the warmth difference between it and beside it. and. Yeah, that was just absolutely amazing. And after that, I was, I had the bug. That's the gene activated in this Summerlin. And ever since then, Grandpa get a research. I was with him so we could go check it out. Um, just trying to learn. And it was always just more, uh, uh, what's, what's that old saying? Be seen but not heard. So he'd take me on his reports. Or like the uh, seven mile tracks that were found at Mill Creek. I was there the second time he went back. And so I was just kind of in the background listening to him talk to Paul and Vance. And uh, Jeff Meldrum actually showed up around that. And just learning. And yeah, that's kind of my first sighting. Can you go into more detail about the one you saw? Like, you know, like how, like what was the lighting and facial facial features, hair color, like hair length? bodybuild well it definitely i've seen a few big or a couple of bigger ones than that one so i'd have to say and i'd have to go back to really get a good answer but i'd say it was six and a half feet maybe a little taller uh it had a kind of a light to dark brown hair i mean it seemed like uh, it was kind of overcast day so i mean there was clouds but there was sun peeking through here and there but uh, if you know someone who has, like, brown hair, the edges seem light brown, where actually it's right. really dark brown. Um, and the eyes. That's one thing I have always hear reports. People say that they all Bigfoot have red eyes. And I am telling you, if you've ever had an Alaskan Malamute or seen one, a lot of Malamutes have these gold brown eyes. And those were the color eyes here. I mean, and I think about that day as often as I can. And I know we're 20, 25 feet away, but those eyes were gold. The look in its eyes wasn't a, hey, I'm going to eat you or anything. It was 
confusion. It was curiosity. I mean, you could see the look in its eyes. And it was as curious about us three kids there as we were about it there. And there was, you know, obviously, like I mentioned, there's that 10% feel the first time. Gosh, I'm getting all exhilarated just thinking about it again. (laughs) But then there's just that overwhelming, oh, my God. That's a Bigfoot. I mean, one, it's real. It's there. And you're trying to get as much detail information as you can. And and then when it turned to walk away, he turned and he kind of glanced over his shoulder a couple of times. In fact, Grandpa pointed that out in the trackway. That's when I first learned when they turn, they turn a lot of their body, including the foot in the direction they're turning. So if they're looking over their left shoulder, you might notice that their left foot it's kind of pointed to the left. It's just something I remembered. But anyhow, it's it was amazing, man. I just, yeah, I was hooked. I mean, it, just knowing that there's something there. And even if I go to the mountains now and I don't find anything, just knowing that there's something there maybe watching me just makes it so much more exhilarating that I've just got to keep going. Since you saw it so close, what color was the skin? Well, I wasn't really paying attention to skin, but it was definitely. I wouldn't say a black, but it was kind of a... A gray, maybe? Yeah, like a dark gray. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've heard... I'm just kind of curious. I hear a lot of grays and I hear a lot of brownish and that sort of thing, you know, various shades. and th- I'm, I'm always kind of curious about that. And also, um, were there any... I, mean, I know that you were probably mesmerized and you, you zeroed on the eyes like so many other witnesses, um, but did you notice any parts of the body where the hair might have been longer than any others? Honestly, gosh, that's... 30 some odd years ago. Not that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, I don't know is always a good answer. You know, don't worry. Yeah, I don't know. How was the build? Like, like the musculature and the broadness and that sort. Definitely broad shoulders. That's one thing I did notice is they had really huge shoulders. And I'd reckon I realized its arms were like uncannily longer than you would think they would be. I mean, if you, Look at your arms when you're standing up. It seems like theirs were just a hair, well, a hair longer. I don't know if that'd be the right term, but it was considerably longer. But you can notice it. Broad shoulders, long arms. Uh, It seemed like um, when it turned its head, I mean, when we turn our heads, I can look all the way to the right, all the way to the left. But it, I don't know. It's something I thought of a, a while later I mentioned to Grandpa is it seems like they don't have the full range of motion like we do with their necks. So when they turn, I think that's why they turn so much of their body because it's, I don't know, they just can't rotate their head that far. I don't know. Maybe it just happened to be something I noticed, and but nothing. But it's something I've always thought was kind of odd, especially with further tracks found over the years. When you find that one pointed over to the side, you kind of wonder, were they looking over their shoulder or were they looking at something? I know Grandpa and Jeff, they talked about that with the seven-mile tracks on Mill Creek. Well, um, that wasn't the last time you saw a Sasquatch with your own eyes. No. Um, what, what, I don't know how many times you have seen it, so I'll just say, what happened? You know, what's the next one? Uh, I've had a total of five actual sightings. Uh, I always say four confirmed, one unconfirmed. Uh, The confirmed, I either had witnesses or I was able to find tracks. Um, The unconfirmed, I seen through a telescope. I was at the squaw camp where Grandpa's tree is. Yeah, I want to talk about that too after we when we get to that. So yeah, and I was uh, brought my telescope up there because I wanted to get away from all light noise. And since I got there early before it was dark. I was able to scope out the lower valleys there and actually watched one cruising down the river, you know, just walking next to the river. So that was my unconfirmed one because there was no way I was going to walk seven or eight miles to find that thing. But uh, let's see, my next, after the Wanaha there, or not the Wanaha, Timothy Meadows, uh, we had one at Bear Springs, I think is what it's called. It's just as you're heading towards Squaw Camp. Yeah, yeah. Bear Springs is on the it's right off a uh, um Skyline Road there. Yeah, we were four by fouring and I was with a couple of friends of mine who at the time were also complete skeptics. Uh this is after my first sighting. 
and we went down off road and we there's a if you've been there there's a little cliff at the end some rock croppings you can look down in the valley we would took his international down and around and as we went around uh there was one right there and this thing was flipping huge because we were in his big old international scout i mean this thing was a monster truck as it was and this thing I mean, its entire upper body was above the hood of that truck. So it had to be, I mean, no less than eight foot. But, I mean, we came around that, and then we thought we were going to hit it. It slapped the top of his hood and left a huge dent. (laughs) Oh, wow. And then it turned and walked away. And my buddy was sitting there, Windwalker. uh, That was his CB handle. That's what everybody called him. He was in shock. and. After that, we went to go tell Grandpa about it, and at first, Grandpa was like thinking I was just looking to get another story, or as my friends were looking to get a story in there, but we ended up going up and found some tracks. Grandpa was able to follow him down quite a ways, and we got some casts from that. In fact, uh, Windwalker has a, had a couple of those. I don't know if uh, they got passed on to his kids after he passed or not, but yeah, it was that was an interesting one, especially when... Uh, Windwalker, who was almost full-blooded Cherokee. I mean, the guy was Indian, but he had no belief in it whatsoever. And after that, he he actually stopped going to the mountains a lot. Oh, oh Bigfoot ruins another person's mountain time. Yeah, if he did go to the mountains, he stayed in the truck and he never went up unarmed. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. This area is so rich with footprint um, finds. Uh, the Seven Mile Trackway wasn't far away. Five Points, where Meldrum Castle stuff is right up the road. Uh, Biscuit Ridge and Black Snake and all those those famous hills—they're right there. That is a very very rich area um, for Bigfoot lore there in the Walla Walla area. Oh yeah, uh, Black Snake and Biscuit has always been a hot spot. Uh, not so much lately, unfortunately, because. Back in the day when we were getting reports on uh, Black Snake and Biscuit, if you went up there and broke down, you had a 10-mile hike to either the first house or town to get help. But now, if you break down, you walk 50 yards, you go to a cabin. If nobody's there, you walk 50 to 100 yards to the next cabin, and so on. Uh, So it's unfortunately overpopulated but there are still some reports that come out of there occasionally i got a friend david who him and his wife have had encounters further north up black snake uh i'm sure i know you've both been up there at least we were up there with the producers as well where you can turn off to go to biscuit or you can keep going straight on black snake and there's some cabins and some private land up there and they've had some tracks come out of that area as well just within the last year or so yeah, you know, we had Reggie Bird on the um, the show just a few weeks ago, and he was just had come back from following up on a report in that general vicinity, I guess. Uh, he didn't see it, of course, but um, uh, he was following up on a report that he received. So um, there is some stuff happening up in there. Um, and uh, I think last summer we had somebody in the shop here in the museum that um, owned property on Clicker Mountain, which is also right there. Oh, yeah. And uh, they were telling us about a sighting that they had had a number of years ago, um, I think in the early 2000s, of seeing one of these things walk above their house on the hill, if I remember right. Um, so that whole area is just, whatever reason, I don't know if it's seasonal. I know most a lot, lot of the stuff happens in January and February. Like the Seven Mile Trackway was in January. Meldrum Singh was in February. Uh, and that is lower elevation. So it makes a lot of sense because uh, you can't even access the higher elevation at the time. So who knows what's happening up there. Exactly. But, um, well, you know, um, there's a, up on, I want to, I think it's Biscuit. I don't think it's Black Snake, but I think it's Biscuit. Um, David Bean told me about a spring that stays liquid all year long, no matter in the dead of winter, there's still water flowing there. And he said that he had found footprints there a number of times. And I don't know if you've known, actually, I just found out this, uh, I just this found this out in the last month. Apparently, David Bean has passed now. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I heard that in the shop here, someone who knew him. Um, so apparently David, 
and if anybody can verify this, I'd be interested to know. So you can email us. But from what I understand, David Bean is now passed. So another one of the great trackers of the Blue Mountain area, and one of these unsung heroes that doesn't really get the credit that they deserve, who was there. Um, has passed away. And I have an interview I did with David Bean, about a 45-minute interview with him. And he told a story about the first time he met your grandfather. Um, your grandfather was literally walking down the road um, in front of his house, I think the Mill Creek Road there. And um, he, he and David Bean went out and said, like, what are you doing? <laughs> and then they struck up a conversation. And then they, and David Bean, of course, was also an expert tracker. And they struck up a friendship, which lasted the rest of your grandfather's life. So, All right on. Yeah, another great. I'll try to dig that out. And I'll try to um, send that to you because I'm sure you would appreciate hearing his words. Yeah, I met him off and on over the years. Uh, got to meet, you know, Renee DeHinden. Of course, when he came to visit, I was not generally allowed to sit and listen very often, uh, just because he cussed a lot, and I was still pretty young. <laughs> <laughs> so if my mom was around, it was like, no, you go find something else to do. If I was with my dad, it was like, yeah, sit down, don't tell your mom. Did you have a chance to meet Bob Titmus? Because I know he came out to the blues. Not that I recall. Uh, if I saw, I'd have to look up a picture of him. I might have met him. Uh, again, keep in mind, a lot of the research up until I was uh, about 12 years old was just around the summertime because that's when my dad took leave from the Air Force. Now, you mentioned Krantz. You, you, you oh, certainly yeah. had a chance to meet Krantz. Yes, I met him several times over the years. Um, I met, uh, Renee DeHinden, obviously knew Paul Freeman, Bill Lowry, all the greats, um, even met last name Green. Oh, John Green. Yeah. He came down, uh, to talk to grandpa about something. Um, what about Bill Lowry? Oh yeah. Bill was a regular feature on our Sunday meetings. You want mm-hmm. grandpa's Sunday meetings. Tell us about Bill. Well, he was a forestry guy. He good friend of grandpa's. I mean, I don't know what information I could really give about him. I haven't talked to him or, well, I know he passed a few years ago. Yeah, he did. Unfortunately, he was just someone that was always around grandpa. And a lot of times you got to realize with grandpa, a lot of us kids, we were, you know, you can be seen, but not heard. Just sit off to the side and listen. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I saw a wonderful video recently with Bill Lowry and your grandfather in it out there tracking and talking about Bigfoot stuff. And uh, I, I guess it was after a, one of their sightings because your, I think your grandfather was saying, yeah, this is where it was standing at the time. And I, 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 but it sounded like it was based off a, a sighting report, not a footprint find. I could be wrong about that. Huh. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, I think there's little traces of your grandfather out there online and YouTube and whatnot all over oh, the yeah. place little snippets here and there, like Good Morning America came. I don't think they gave you guys a good, uh, gave uh, your grandfather or Paul Freeman a fair shake, honestly. No, I don't, um, they didn't. No, in fact, that's the one that a lot of people point to the Good Morning America um, interview with, say, Paul Freeman and say, see, he admitted to faking prints. No, he didn't. The Good Morning America thing said, have you ever made fake footprints? And he said, well, yeah, because, well, because he did experiments in his garden is why, why he made fake footprints. He didn't say that he faked footprints, but people, you know, people, the, the naysayers and the trolls, they, they like to take that and twist that and show that as evidence that the Blue Mountain evidence was fake. But no, they're just misconstruing things like I have made fake footprints in, in muddy areas just to cast them and photograph them and then erase them afterwards for studying purposes. Dr. Meldrum has done the same. I, if you want to be an expert in footprints, you have to be an expert in fake footprints. And I would encourage everybody to do experiments like this. But I guess you don't tell Good Morning America because they're going to throw you under the bus. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I do remember that. I was actually at the house when they were doing the interview or one of the interviews with Paul. And I couldn't believe that. He went into the story. He explained that, yes, um, he has made tracks. And like you said, it was for to experiment to see how these tracks are being made or how they can't be faked the way people are accusing them of being faked. I remember during the seven mile tracks, he was actually, that area was really muddy, uh, but it was also frozen. So those, some of those tracks were several inches into the mud and Paul Freeman, anybody that met him, especially back in that day, he was not a small man and he was standing in 
stomping next to some of these tracks and couldn't even come close to what those tracks are. And if someone was going to go and make seven miles worth of tracks that way, they're either a very big guy or they're got a truck with big feet on there or something to plaster them into the ground. Yeah, you know, another point I'd like to make about the Blue Blue Mountain evidence um, is that, yes, there are fakes in the Blue Mountain evidence, but the people involved, this is your grandfather, this is Paul Freeman, this is Bill Lowry, and, you know, Dar Addington, another person we haven't mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, these people heard about something, they go to the area, and whatever is there, they document and record and cast and take home. I would do the same thing. I have fakes in my collection that I have gathered in the field, but that doesn't mean I faked them. All that means is that I recorded them like any good researcher should. Just because there are fakes in a body of evidence does not mean all of the evidence is fake, nor does it mean that the people who collected it faked it. And that's another aggravating point that these, you know, that I, I, I just get so upset about um, seeing these trolls online, you know, flicking crap around at people about. It's really a shame. Yeah, that's one thing. Um, when I started doing uh, my research and getting more into it, especially when I was a truck driver. So I traveled 48 states, Canada, uh, Mexico, but around my northern U.S., if I did find, happen to find tracks in the blues or wherever, I always tried to get the left and right because grandpa would explain to me that if he can get a good left and a good right and a good trailway, that's going to be good evidence to have. Whereas if you just take a left or a right, then you're always going to have to answer those questions on people are just going to assume it's fake right off the get go. But he also taught me early on that not to give a damn. There's always going to be those people that don't believe. And I believe that's fine. If you don't want to believe, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I think Meldrum said, uh, "Take if you can only got enough plastic for two, take two lefts or two rights, so you can show the difference. That it's not a it's not a cutout. It's it's a living, movable foot. Whereas if you only have one of each, you could say, well, they only made one fake track of each." Yeah, that's a good way to do it because uh, toes should show some mobility, um, especially in the horizontal axis. Um, there should be some differentiation in the toe splay, especially when you collect enough prints. Um, you know, I'm pretty extreme. I've, I collected quite a few in a row before. Um, and if I had, if I'd only collected one or two, I would still think the London tracks are real, but I, luckily I didn't, I kind of went um, overboard a bit, but I, I collected quite a few of those tracks. And because of that, I learned that, yeah, I actually, I did, I did experiments. I faked footprints myself so I could learn about it. I actually called in the, uh, help from another hoaxer actually. And he let me some, uh, uh, fake stompers, but, um, uh, and I did experiments with it and I cast my own footprints and it was through those experiments. It was through studying fake tracks that I made for myself that I erased immediately afterwards. So nobody else would stumble across them and think that they're real. Um, that I, I learned, oh yeah, London tracks are almost certainly fake. Um, and there's other examples of that as well, but yeah, uh, there should always be some sort of horizontal toe splay. If you collect enough of the same foot repeatedly, I didn't think um, about that, but that makes a good point. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It, it, that's a strong suggestion that to, for doing next time. If you can, if you only have enough plaster for two, go for two rights or two lefts. Um, it's neat to have a left and a right because it's it's cool to have a set. You know, like it just fits our brain better in some ways. But um, if, as far as convincing a, a legit tracker and people like that, a couple in a row of the same foot would be more compelling to them. Yeah. I can see the point of that. Yeah, I'll definitely. And I always bring, when I go to the mountains, it's kind of same as carrying a shovel and a first aid kit. I always carry plaster. Well, I bring something to cast. I generally use dental stone these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Heavy stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, if it's I'm. Expensive, too. Yeah, if I'm just driving around, then I bring the dental stone. But if I'm going to go for a hike, then I'll bring something much lighter. If I'm planning on if i get a report uh, like i've had some stuff up on uh, spout spring someone said they found some tracks halfway up the hill, uh, ski hill there and i went to go investigate those and it's a nice hike to where it was and i definitely wasn't carrying dental stone up there so it was just some basic plaster you get from hobby lobby figured i could cast whatever and bring it down it it wasn't a bigfoot it was actually a bear and a bear step 
So, um, you, unfortunately, your, your grandfather has passed. Um, when did he die, by the way? Uh, let's see. It was 2000, 2001. 2001. And I, you told me about his funeral one time, and, and there's a monument out in the Blue Mountains um, so his memory can live forever in a place that probably he loved more than anywhere else. Uh, tell us tell us about that monument. Yeah, we got a, it's in Squaw Springs, uh, top of Tiger Canyon there. We, that's where grandpa wanted his ashes spread is that area. That was, there's a beautiful point off from the camp there where you can, it was where I had my telescope and had that sighting with the one walking the river. You could see the whole valley. And what we did is we started a ribbon tree. And at the time, it was just a small tree, maybe six foot tall, six, eight feet tall when we started it. And uh, the Indians would believe, uh, many tribes, is you take a ribbon, tie it on the tree. It's kind of like a prayer ribbon. Uh, Sometimes you could tie the ribbon with tobacco in there, offering the tobacco to the spirits, um, or mementos. And you tie it to the branch and leave a prayer to remember and we actually put an old sign there years ago we had a sign there's a new one now and over the years that tree has not only grown but now there's about eight trees in the area and i think about five of them actually people have continued adding ribbons over the decades and a couple summers ago i actually put a trail cam across from grandpa's main ribbon tree uh, just kind of curious to see if people are messing with the tree or what people are doing up there. Or I was kind of hoping Bigfoot would come over and say hi to Grandpa's tree. And I actually seen several times over the summer just huge groups of natives uh, that would be there with the drums and everything. And they'd be surrounding the tree and dancing and singing and paying their respects to Grandpa. So it's just amazing how it's grown over 20 years. And if you still go up there, you can, we got two new signs just because the other one was starting to wear down. So I put a new one that should last another good 30, 40 years, I hope, or more. Um, here this summer, it'll probably be a new sign up there for my grandma because we're hoping to get my grandma's ashes up there with grandpa. Oh, that's beautiful. And I understand it was a beautiful ceremony as well. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And I have yet to see the tree. You've been telling me about it for years now. Yeah, I've, I've yet to see the tree. I, I've driven through uh, the, the spring a few times in that general area, but there's always been somebody else there, and I don't want to be disrespectful to them, so I always keep moving on. But one of these days, I'll be able to camp there for a few nights and uh, poke around and find the tree. So, Well, it's right there, and there's always somebody there camping. That's one of the campsites I was mentioning earlier is it's close enough to the main road and town where people actually visit it quite often. Um, not often enough for them to update the outhouse, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, anyhow, uh, it's, you can find a place to park and walk over there and see it. It's, it's an, an amazing thing to see. I, I can send you pictures. Um, obviously a picture only does so much, but I get people at telling me all the time, especially a lot of my four by four friends that go up there in the dead of winter with their snowmobiles. And they'll send me a picture of Grandpa's sign, which is 12 feet up in the tree. And it looks like it's like two inches off the ground because of all the snow. And they'll say, just letting you know your Grandpa's tree is good and safe and it's still here. And they always, uh, a lot of the people around here have either who knew Grandpa, know the family, or know of the family or have so much respect for it that I've actually had several friends tell me they're up there with their buddies snowmobiling, having fun. But if anybody goes near that tree, they are on them. I mean, it's like, leave that tree alone. Don't go near that tree. Don't take a leak next to that tree. You know, just leave. They explain it to them. And it's really cool how many people that I have no clue who half these people are know grandpa and are passing that information down that this is just like going into a graveyard and you got a tombstone. You don't want to desecrate the tombstone. How do you so. feel about people adding rib- ribbons to the tree? Oh, I encourage it. People add ribbons there every year. That's what I, I, you can, if you go and I'll go this year in case you can't make it, I'll take pictures for you. 
that tree was so small. There was just a few ribbons that when we went up there and a lot of those ribbons, the ones that have survived the test of time are, you know, 20 feet in the air now. And there's hundreds of more ribbons. There's pictures. Uh, people have written poems and then like laminated it and put it under the tree. There's uh, I'm not going to advertise it, but there's a couple of hidey holes up there where some very memorable objects are left. I actually left a picture of my graduation from college photo, a little while I encased it in resin and put it on there and it's buried right at the bottom of the trunk of the tree. So it's just, everybody leaves something up there. It's just our way. You know, we might not be able to see grandpa, but as far as we're concerned, that's grandpa's tree. That is grandpa's memorial. And in some way, that is grandpa. Well, your grandpa affected so many people's lives. I mean, I knew I, mean, I knew about West Summerlin decades before I met you, um, and it, it is so cool to like to, to speak to you, of course, and but like be be a part of this in some sort, small sort of way. It's kind of following in your grandfather's footsteps and building on what he started in a lot of way in, in a lot of ways. And yeah, it's it's just so cool in so many ways. Well, yeah, grandpa was an amazing man, and he inspired so many people. Uh, I have so many foster aunts and uncles. Uh, here's an old story uh, that I've just heard from Grandpa and Grandma and my dad. Uh, years ago, these three kids stole a couple horses from my grandpa, and they took off for the mountains. And Grandpa went and tracked them. They had the police out there looking for them, and Grandpa was able to track them at night, in the rain, no less. You know, I don't know if it's an uphill both ways story, but this is just how it goes. But uh, he found them. And he made sure they were warm and they, he got them out of the mountains. And instead of having them arrested, which most people would do, he gave them a home, gave them clothes and food. And they went to school and, you know, they became a Summerlin, essentially. They may not have taken on the last name, but he'd had so many people like that that he took in and just gave a chance to, you know, if you're willing to work for it, do work on the property and go to school, work, make better of yourself. He was always there to help you out. And he's inspired so many people to do that as well. My good friend and tattoo artist, he does that because grandpa did that. And he's got several adopted kids that he's taken off the street and gave a second chance. And a lot of them are excelling in other areas. One of the first stories I heard about your grandfather's generosity came from Derek Randall's. Um, Derek was uh, called out for some sort of follow-up on a sighting report in the blues. And this is, you know, decades and decades ago. Um, I want to say maybe in the 90s. I'm not even sure. And um, Derek somehow got your grandfather's address and just no announcing, no calling, no nothing, walked up to the door and knocked. And I think your grandmother answered and invite him, invited wow. him in and they met Wes. And Derek spent the next week, week and a half sleeping on the couch. Um, they just invited him to stay basically and fed him and gave, showed him all the casts and talked Bigfoot and kind of made him one of his own, you know, one of the, one of the Summerlins in a way, just for a week yeah. or two. Yeah, just the kind of guy your grandfather was, and 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 you know, I've, I've many people that I would have liked to have met who who left before I had a chance to. Um, and your grandfather is certainly near the top of the list. Yeah, he was a, he was an amazing guy. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on Bigfoot and Beyond and telling us not only about your grandfather and and his legacy, but but your own experiences as well, because the Summerlin blood is within you. Um, and there might be something to that. Uh, I'm so happy to hear that you're continuing your grandfather's legacy and uh, doing research out in the woods and stuff. Is there a place that people can get a hold of you if they want to? Yes, I actually run the Walla Walla Bigfoot page on Facebook, uh, me and a friend of mine. But if you need to or want to send me a message, you're more than welcome to go on there and shoot me a message through the page and either tell me your story or ask when we're going to the mountains again. And I'm always willing to take people up there with me uh, just to go camping. You know, that's all you can do is if you want to go camping, we'll go camping. If something happens, awesome. If nothing happens, we just spend a few days in the mountains having fun. Amen. Thanks again for, uh, I haven't talked to you since you had that, your last sighting. So it's good to catch up with you and we appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. I, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks, man.
All right. Catch you guys later. Bye. Bye. Bigfoot royalty, bubs. Yeah, it's always good to catch up with old friends because I don't keep up on that stuff on my own too much. So if it wasn't for the podcast, uh, I wouldn't be talking to almost anybody. Yeah, I know. You know, finding Bigfoot used to fill that hole for me because we travel the country and get to catch up with friends when we're in different parts. Um, but, you know, finding Bigfoot's gone. So now it's a podcast. We have a chance to reach out and, you know, see what's going on with some people that we haven't seen for years. Yeah. You know what else I got to say? I just talked to Turtle Man the other day for like an hour. He's in, just got out of the hospital. He almost got killed by a Widowmaker came down. He was cutting up firewood, uh, bucking up a tree and a big hardwood limb, like a maple or something came down and broke his, I think broke both his shoulders and gave him a uh, severe concussion and um, broke him up pretty good. But he's, he's on, he will recover. He's on the mend, but so for all the turtle man fans out there, maybe send him a little love and if you're giving some prayers up. He'd appreciate that too. Yeah. Good vibes for the turtle man then. Yeah. So yeah, I, I guess uh, the next thing coming up for me would be the Ohio Bigfoot conference at the end of the month. I'm sorry you have to miss that both, but Matt and Renee will be there and Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Yeah. I heard there's a little talk about that. I'm going to do a surprise appearance and that's not the case. No, 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 it's not the case. And uh, for the people who asked me, I got a Twitter uh, tweet today. Is is Bobo alive? Bob, are you alive? You had the best answer. Often. <laughs> Usually, perhaps. I didn't yeah. know. <laughs> I deliberated about the, my response for a while, but I chose often. So. That's a good one. I'm going to borrow that from now on. Because yeah. I, I, get, I get messages to me all the time. Are you still alive? <laughs> some days I, I usually write no some days more than others yeah that's true <laughs> all right cliff that was a good one i was yeah west Summerlin. a lot of people wouldn't know that name unless you're really into the bigfoot uh deep in the game but he was you know he's he was the man of his time i mean him and bob gillen were like the preeminent trackers you know that were involved in bigfoot yeah, yeah. Um, Wes Summerlin did so much work, and and not and he could have done so much more too. And not just because he passed away at some point, but as as uh, Jonathan said, he didn't even cast all the prints or photograph the prints that he found. No. Um, so much more documentation could have been done, and it's not a missed opportunity because all of that adds up into like Wes Summerlin's legacy because these stories still are out there. And I'm so thankful Jonathan had a chance to come on and share a little bit about what his grandfather shared with him. Yeah, and you're still, and his research is still being utilized. I mean, you got possession of that map that they made in the blues. And I mean, you're using that to try to figure out uh, when you're going to do some squatching up there yourself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Plan to go to the blues this summer at least once, maybe twice if I can make it out there. Um, and of course, drop by and see Jonathan and Ray, his father, uh, just who become good friends of mine. You know, it's, it's nice to catch up on occasions like this um, and to see some of the old casts, the originals that are still in the Summerlin possession. Um, it's so much has gone on in the blues. It's kind of like going to Bluff Creek in a way, you know, just I, mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm a fan of Bigfoot history and the blues is such a rich part of it. And most of those people are gone. Jonathan is still doing his work. We have other people out there and we just talked to, um, uh, Reggie bird a few weeks ago. He's doing work out there. There are a few other people doing it, but, um, back in the day, man, uh, Wes Summerlin, all Freeman, Bill Lowry, those folks were out there so often. And they had such a high level of skill. And that is why there's so much physical evidence from that time period, that 20-something years from 82 to about 2002. All right, Bobs. Well, let's take us home, man. Yeah. All right, folks. That was another good one. Thanks for uh, joining us. Tuning in. Hit the share and like button. Spread the word like Thunderbird. And until next time, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 